I thought I was fine. I, you know, I even thought, like, I bounced back pretty quickly. I feel like I could go back to the office and work. I could appear in court. And I remember trying to read to my son, like, a junior version of Green Eggs and Ham, and I couldn't read it, the whole thing. It was just bizarre. A reluctant lawyer at first, Ken Lee finally found the type of practice that meant something to him. But other needs around him were greater, and he made a choice to change. Little did he know, an even bigger change was to be thrust on him. Find out how handling what comes at you is sometimes all there is to do on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with Ken Lee, and we are going to talk about things we make happen and things that happen. So it's lovely to see you here. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Leslie. It's it's a real honor to be here. Okay, so you've been listening, you told me. So you know, we start this the same way each episode with two questions. And they are, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? You know, I think while we were in college, I felt a little, I wouldn't say lost, but with out direction. I think that really only changed towards the end of senior year, probably because, you know, we were going to graduate. And, you know, I think I had to make some decisions about what I was going to do, you know, once we left Hanover. So that added some clarity. And in terms of who, where I am now or who I am now, I don't know if I'm all that different. I think there are certainly times where I feel like I could use a little more direction, but it's been a winding road. I've gone through, um, you know, professionally some interesting things that might seem a little dull, but were revelatory to me. And I've gone through some kind of weird things in, uh, in life from a family and health perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to that. Yeah. And I don't think it's dull. I've told you that already. So, <laughs> But when we were leaving, it's interesting to me that you said that you were lost because I would look at you and your career and think, oh, he always knew he wanted to be a lawyer. That's not the case. No, 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 no. I think like most freshmen, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I think my, my mom certainly had wanted me to be a doctor. And then I took a chemistry class and a biology class freshman year. And it was very, very painfully clear to me that I was not uh, suited to be a doctor. That kind of set me on, I wouldn't say a tailspin, but it definitely kind of made me rethink of what I actually wanted to do and what classes I wanted to take. And I think I didn't really do handle that all that well. I think I took a lot of classes that seemed like they would be interesting. They fit the right time period that I wanted. But ultimately, I don't know if I really felt connected to the material or the subject. But, you know, I just needed a class or, you know, yeah. classes. Yeah. So you said that end of the senior year, you were like, oh, I have to have a plan. Really, you had to have had a plan earlier if you were going to go straight to law school. So what was the idea and when did law come into play in your mind? Uh, probably seen, if not maybe senior fall or, or junior spring. And I, this is a, a cliche, but I went to law school to simply to delay the process of having to decide <laughs> what I want to do. I, you know, I didn't really know anyone who was a lawyer. I didn't have any grand vision like, oh, I want to become a lawyer because I want to 
you know, do X or Y, or it's been like a life's passion of mine. No, no. I mean, I, I think I'd watched a lot of law shows like LA law. So I, I think it seemed like, you know, just another step, another chance to sort of figure it out at some point. Yeah, which you did. And you've already mentioned that other people might think the things that you learned professionally were dull, but they were revelatory for you. So talk us through that in the various stages of your career, because you had a, diff- a couple of different roles in the law. Yeah, so I, I, went to, I went to law school right after graduation. You know, when, when classes started, I thought, you know, maybe I wanted to pursue family law. That seemed like it would be interesting, never dull. You're dealing with interesting clients. And it became pretty clear to me that I had that wasn't for me. That I, I never, <laughs> I've never represented any clients that had anything to do with family law, and I've <laughs> never spent a minute doing anything sort of family law related. But when you're when you're in law school, you kind of go through the process where you learn sort of the basics, and they kind of steer you towards litigation because you're talking about you know obviously conflicts within cases and whatnot. And so I think I sort of naturally moved in that direction. And then in my first summer, so after my first year at law school, I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, where I worked with this one assistant U.S. attorney who was also a Dartmouth grad and was just like a really impressive guy. He was, you know, very smart, very, you know, hardworking. And he he was a bit of a, a role model that, you know, he he worked in Boston. So that some of that rubbed off on me. Then in the second year, I accepted a position at a big law firm in Boston, and then I worked almost exclusively in litigation. So it was sort of a natural fit. And it did seem that like I, I had sort of found what I was looking for, where you know the work was interesting. I felt that I was pretty good at it. It felt like the right fit for me. And you practiced that for quite a while. And then there was maybe a back pivot, I don't know, with the U.S. Attorney's Office. But talk to me about kind of public service or law in the public service. Sure. I mean, I think that was always in the back of my mind that I would want to do that. At my first firm, I'd worked with some some people who had done that. And it really seemed rewarding, both from a, I think, from a personal and professional perspective. So that was always in the back of my mind. But like most things, it kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. And then uh, I had switched firms, and so that got delayed a little bit, a little bit longer. And then I really, to be blunt, really started disliking my my job. Is that the revelatory the, part? Yeah, and it was like it, it was a point where I thought I was up for partnership, and so I thought, well, I've I, you know I've walked down this road for such a long period of time that I thought that if partnership did become available, you know, it would make sense for me just to take it and continue and just sort of toil away in um, unpleasantness. And then, frankly, they they let me go. And it was a it was a bit of a it was a stunner. And then there was a period where I was like, I was, you know, not in private practice anymore. And that kind of kicked me into gears like, well, you know, I've always been thinking about working in the public sector that kind of thrust me forward. And then I did. I, I, I looked uh, looked into the uh, the uh, Massachusetts Attorney General's office, and that was a great place to work. And it was sort of refueled me, I guess, because it, it had been it had been rough at the end working as a lawyer in private practice, and it was really really rewarding to work on tough cases with good people for the right reasons. Yeah. 
And then that theme actually carried into your next pivot, the being with good people for the right reason. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> uh, so so I had been at the, at the Attorney General's office for about four years. And in some ways, it was... It was just like working at a, at a at a big law firm. It was a lot of hours, not as much pay, but you, you know, I guess you, you got more out of the work. But my wife, who is a doctor, was really bearing the brunt of not only her work but also for our kids because, you know, I worked in Boston, but we lived in the suburbs, and my wife, her office was in you know closer to where we live, so it was on her to not only you know work. But also, if the kids got sick at school, you know, she was closer. It took her less time to get home to start, you know, dinner and do all those sorts of things. But it was just the reality is I worked in Boston and we didn't live there. And we'd had two children who were, uh, you know, nearing teenage years. And then unexpectedly, we found out that, that my wife was that we were we were going to have another. <laughs> and it was uh, it was quite a surprise, quite a surprise. Yeah, you but, weren't good in medical stuff early no, on, so and the, the, didn't the, understand how it worked. No, the funny thing is my wife, uh, who's also a Dartmouth grad, she was a class of 98. Before, I told her, like, I think two two daughters is enough. You know, we're at the age now where, you know, I think that's that's it for our family. And she kind of resisted. She thought, well, maybe we'd have a third. But finally, she had come around and said, yeah, I think two is two is right. And then, of course, very shortly after that, we found out we were having a third. <laughs> and what's the age gap between? So, so right now, two? our oldest is 17. She's a senior in high school. Our youngest daughter is a sophomore in high school. And our son is five and he's in kindergarten. Oh, my God. I know. So it was it was a lot to deal with. But, but I, I had promised my wife that once once the baby was born... I would leave the office and I would stay at home while we, when she went back to work. And I'd said that I never wavered from that. I thought as it was getting closer and closer, my wife was getting a little nervous. She thought that I, I, I just wouldn't be able to pull the trigger, that something would happen or I would get assigned a, a case or something would happen at work. And at the last minute, I would say, I just, I just can't. And so she was very nervous. And I hadn't told my boss yet that I was leaving. So she felt that was right. that was deliberate on my part, that I was, you know, half in, half out. And so, but no, no, no. So finally I cut the cord. I told my boss, you know, I'm leaving the office. It's, I'm not going to someplace else. I'm not going back to private practice. It's not because of anything work-related. It's just because I, I'm going to make the decision to stay at home and watch our, our kids. And and they were they were great about it. I think they were a little, maybe a little surprised, but because traditionally it's typically the, the woman who uh, stays at home or leaves professional positions to stay at home, and I, I certainly had seen that before. But you know, I think you know, like I kind of owed it to my wife. She was a much better doctor than I was a lawyer, so uh, and she certainly got more out of her work than I got out of mine. So it just made sense for us. So at that point, you had young teens, tweens, a baby. Yeah. And I'm sure you'd been a hands-on dad the first time around, but it's different like when it's all on you. Oh, yeah. It, it was, I was not, I would say, good at anything <laughs> when it came to the, <laughs> to the house. I was, you know, didn't really cook that much, didn't really clean that much. 
I would not say I was like the best teacher of our children. So, I, you know, you make really wonder, like, why did my wife even agree to this? Because it wasn't like I had some kind of apparent talent at any of these things. And it, it was tough in the beginnings. I think every morning or every every dinner was basically like stuff I cooked in college. I didn't cook. I did not cook much. It was like pasta, you know, with sauce out of the jar every day or who wants frozen pizza every day. And it was it was, that was not great. Well, they thought it was great. I mean. uh, yeah, but, but but at some point you're like, oh, geez, dad, you got to you, you got to get better at this. And so gradually I did. I, I would not pretend to say that I'm like Eric Repair or anything like that. But I certainly have gotten better at, at like cooking. I enjoy it more. It's it's a, it's kind of creative. So that that part is good. But it has been an adjustment to a completely different skill set. But it's been it's been it's been rewarding, and it's certainly in its own way. Yeah, yeah. And so this was 2016. And you're chugging along and you're you're finding your way in this very new world. And then you alluded to health things. What happened? Yeah, so I'll back up a bit. So my sister, who who was also at Dartmouth, she was class of 07. She had gone through a very, very bad disease called glioblastoma. And so for a period of time, you know, she lived in our house and, you know, my mom came from Michigan. So people were just kind of come to our house while my, my sister was undergoing uh, treatment and care. And ultimately she passed away. She was diagnosed in June of 2009 and then she passed away January 4th, 2010. So it was a very short period. Her condition went very quickly. So it, that, that, was, that was tough. But then, uh, you know, after I had left the office in 2016, was watching our son, you know, at some point I, I, had, to go, I had to go to the eye doctor to get my prescription for my contacts because they had expired. I need to get new ones. So I went to the eye doctor. I, I, know, I don't know if you go to the eye doctor, but you have to do all these kind of weird tests where they, you know, flash things and you're supposed to press the button when you see a light. And... The eye doctor told me, oh, you need to come back. And, and I think something was wrong with the machine. You got to come back the next day. So I did that, did the exact same test. Um, and again, you just press a button when you see a light. And then she pulled me aside and said, like, I think you need to see a neurosurgeon because I think you might have had a stroke. I, that's my memory. She, she mentioned the word stroke. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, I just came in here for, you know. Eyeglasses, <laughs> which I, I have done frequently. So I called my wife. I said, this is crazy. I, the, the eye doctor thinks I might have had a stroke. I was feeling fine. You know, I'd been a little more active after I'd stopped working. And my wife said, well, you know, go, go get an MRI. So that she had scheduled, gotten me an appointment for MRI, I think later that day. So I went to the hospital and I was just, I was going to go by myself, but the last minute my wife thought like, well, you know, I'll, she'll come visit me, you know, while I get this thing done. We all, we didn't think much of it. And so I had an MRI, which I had never had before. And when I got out of the machine, I asked the, the technician like, so how'd it go? And he, uh, he could see that it was not good. So he said, so I said, well, well, the doctor will talk to you. 
And so basically, you know, <laughs> that wasn't the answer I wanted. No, no, not at all. And I, meanwhile, I, 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 again, I was a failed student of, <laughs> of science. So I just, I don't think I really appreciated what was going on. Mm. But it turns out there was a massive tumor in my brain. You, you know, I think size wise, it was larger than a golf ball, smaller than a tennis ball. And of course, my wife, who is a doctor, uh, saw the scan and knew like, this is, this is not good. This is not good. So we rushed down to MGH that night. Uh, you know, we were sent to the ER. And again, I, I'll, throughout all this, I felt fine. To this day, I don't think I had any symptoms or anything like that. And it probably wasn't a stroke. No, no, no. I don't probably- think it was. I, for some reason, I, I thought the doctor said it was a stroke. But I, 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 in hindsight, I, don't, I, don't, I think I just maybe just created that as a memory. But I don't. Mm. But... I remember the nurses would come up like, so, so what's, what's the issue? Like, I don't really know. I, I feel fine. And I remember watching, we were waiting for the surgeon to come in. And so I was just laying in one of those, you know, uh, patient beds where I was all kind of stretched out. I had the remote in my hand. I remember watching the Celtics play that night. Meanwhile, my wife was just just crumbling because I think she knew what was going on and she knew how large the tumor was. And I think in her mind, she thought like, Oh, it may be too large to operate on. And that didn't cross my mind. Uh, I just thought like, well, you know, we're, we're here. And then the, the surgeon came in and he was uh, very calm. He said, you know, I think you have this, I didn't, they didn't quite know what it was at the point, but like, oh, it's this massive tumor. You know, it's going to need to be taken out. And at the very end, he said, oh, yeah, so we'll schedule surgery, but it won't be today. It'll be, you know, later. So I, I think that those are the words my wife was waiting on. Like, so so you, you, you can operate on it. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, we, can, we, we can do that. And so that was a Friday and the surgery was scheduled for Tuesday. And it was all a blur, to be honest, because, again, I, I really I don't think I really appreciated that it was it was a very precarious situation. That it, and again, there were still a lot of the experience of going through what my sister had gone through. Um, and it, they were kind of related. I, I didn't I, she had a glioblastoma. I had a glioma. But at the time, you didn't we didn't know really know that. that. So I think but was. You were watching basketball, and was that even going through your mind? No. Your sister? No. I, I think I was just maybe in just sort of disbelief of, like, this can, can't be happening. Because literally, I, I just went to the eye doctor, like, a couple hours ago just to get contacts. I don't quite understand what, what, why is the situation is exploding the way that it was. Fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, it was odd. And so I spent the night at the hospital my wife was there with me, you know, uh, my sister-in-law and my uh, brother-in-law had watched the kids. And then uh, we had to go through the process of explaining to them that I had this thing in my head that, you know, we need to, dad needed to be at the hospital for a while. And, you know, things were, it looked a little thorny, but, you know, we had everyone hope for the best. And, oh, the, the ironic thing is... <laughs> That weekend, we were supposed to go skiing, and so I had bought these non-refundable tickets, and I remember complaining to the doctor. I think I even brought it up with the surgeon, like, do I, do I really need to be here? You know, I've got these non-refundable tickets, kind of really looking forward to skiing. Is it, can I like, leave the hospital, go skiing, and come back? And they're like, no, you, you got you to stay here. 
<laughs> and then in hindsight, like, I think I realized like, if, you know, this weird scenario, if I hadn't gone to the eye doctor, if I hadn't found out what I'd had in my head, and if I had gone skiing and fallen, I mean, you know, you go into these dark places, I could have, I don't, you know, it's a worst case scenario that where that might've happened, but, uh, but it didn't. And so he was able to remove it and it, it was like, it was no big deal. Is that uh, end? No, it, it was, it was rough. I mean, you know, I, I felt like I was absolutely at the best place to be at for something that I was going through. I was at MGH, you know, the best doctors, the surgeon who performed the surgery, my wife had sort of asked her boss, like, who's the best guy to do this? Oh, it's this guy. So, you know, I, I, I felt calm in a sense, because at this point, there's really nothing else I can do from a health perspective. So I'm just going to you know, try to be calm. But then you start thinking like, well, every surgery, there's a risk. And again, I, I, I kept thinking about what my sister went through. And so it was tough. And I remember the night before the surgery, you know, I, I pulled aside my daughters and I said, you know, I was thinking I might not recover from this i could you know worst case scenario i might not wake up from the surgery so i I did talk to them and i said you know it's you're never as articulate as you would like to be at moments like this but you know i think i tried to tell them like it, it was the privilege of my life to be their father and you know it was you know i it was it was it was tough and then you know my family had come out like my brother and his sister, they live in Brooklyn. I think the second they found out that I was going through something, they just dropped everything. They drove down or up to see us and they, they stayed at the hotel near MGH. And it was, it was, it was rough, but the surgery was fine, but it was all a blur to be honest. You know, I was in the hospital for 10 days. I don't remember a lot of it, but there was one point where, you know, I met with one of the, one of the doctors and he asked me all these questions and I just kept on saying, okay, which I thought was the normal answer. He was like, well, we're going to do this. Uh, Okay. I mean, we're going to, we want you to do this. Okay. I mean, that's, you know, and then I looked around and I could see a lot of uh, people just sort of that their faces kind of drained. Like I should be saying something more than just, okay. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, "Oh, this is not this is uh, this is not going well." You know, I found out afterwards that the surgeon was concerned that he would need to go back and do another surgery if I didn't sort of respond quickly. Thankfully, I did, uh, but it, the the whole thing was just a blur. Like, I didn't realize that I hadn't I didn't eat for several days. I remember my mother had come up from Michigan and she said, she told me like, the next time anyone comes in here, you got to tell them your name. I'm like, mom, I think they know who I am. It's written on the board. What my name? No, no, they want to hear it from you. (laughs) So (laughs) so, she said, the next time anyone comes in, just say, I'm Ken Lee. (laughs) And so it was just bizarre. But gradually, you know, I got, I was able to speak a little bit more clearly. I had a better understanding of what was going on. But it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a trip for this 10-day period. And then after I left the hospital, yeah, I had to go through speech therapy, which was crazy because I thought I was 
fun. I, you know, I even thought like I bounced back pretty quickly. I feel like I could go back to the office and work. I could appear in court. And I remember trying to read to my son who was eight months. And I remember this vividly. I was reading like a junior version of Green Eggs and Ham and I couldn't read it, the whole thing. And my, my youngest daughter, who was 11, was like nearby. And I was like trying to read it very carefully. And then I would look up at her and she's like, no, that's, that's the right word. You said that the right way. And wow. it was just, it was just, it was bizarre. Yeah. You speak as though it's no big deal. It was weird. I was doing one thing and now I'm doing this other. And there was this recovery period. But you had that moment where you were talking to your daughters and saying, I might not make it, um, but now you've made it. And do you go back to being the father of like crazy teenage girls and you want to kill them? Or does that privilege to be your father kind of <laughs> manifest differently? I wish I could say I emerged from this as like a much more enlightened kind of Zen guy who like, you know, kisses birds and all that kind of stuff. That unfortunately, I kind of, <laughs> for good or ill, I, I did kind of revert back to basically who I was before. <laughs> yeah, I, I maybe there was an opportunity there I, I, I missed to sort of be this, you know, life guru or something, and that that just didn't happen for me. I just came back to being relatively my same old self, for for, for good or bad. And you probably had a very short window where they were uh, particularly happy to have you around. So. Yeah, I mean it's it's rough <laughs> for them. I mean, I mean, in hindsight, I think it was it was tough. It was tough, obviously, for for them. They, they didn't quite know what was happening, and and I think they had also gone through the, the experience of seeing what my sister had gone through, and it, the recovery process for me. It seems like it didn't take that long, but it it really did. It was tough, and it was it was hard for me to get back to the place where you know I felt like I was as maybe as, as nimble as I thought I was, and I think that's there's still part of that. Whereas you know when I was a, when I was a lawyer, you know I was in court a lot, you know I did hearings, depositions, all that kind of stuff. Where you have to be facile, you have to be very quick witted, and be able to you know, remember a lot of different things, you know, all at once, juggle a lot of a plate, so to speak. And, and, you know, I don't know, it was, it was tough. It was tough in the beginning to, to really kind of, you know, tap that well that, that I felt like for a long time was what just wasn't there um, after, after the procedure. Yeah. Well, it seems as though you have these pockets of experience that are, you know, you had decided you needed to leave just for the family. The family, thank goodness, had you around and you were able to go get your own, prescription looked at again. I mean, I'm glad you weren't kind of hard charging at that point. Um, so it seems as though some of these things happen when they were supposed to, I guess. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, but I really, I, I can't praise my wife enough because, you know, we've been together since, you know, senior year, uh, our, our senior year, she was, like I said, she was a 98 and it was just a lot for her to deal with. And, you know, thank God I had her with me and the the kids had her. And it was, I mean, it was just a terrible situation. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, 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 sometimes it's, it's hard to appreciate what you have until you go through something like that. And, you know, it's every now and then it's been almost five years since I'd had my brain surgery. 
And it's, it's weird to think about that because, you know, a lot has changed since then. It's always nice to pause and, and just remember where, where you're at, where you, where you come from. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you're on the other side of that and really appreciate your sharing the story. And we wish you all the best and for continued recovery, renewal, all those good things. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I wish I had some kind of like Mr. Rogers kind of, uh, you know, sentiment I could share with people. But uh, <laughs> I think that's just beyond my my capabilities. <laughs> I think you did fine. <laughs> I also think I'm still just incredibly boring. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because <laughs> I come from a pretty good family. And I just, I still feel like, you know, I'm just the dullard, I guess, of the group. I'm sure all your friends <laughs> think that of you too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Ken, for being here and sharing with us. No, it's been a real honor and it's been a, a real privilege. That was Ken Lee, who is a former Assistant Attorney General at the Office of the Massachusetts Attorney General and a stay-at-home dad to three children in the Boston area. Just as Ken has been pleased to be in those children's lives, I've been pleased over these many months to be in your lives and to connect you with the life stories of other amazing individuals. At this holiday season, we'd love it if you would give your favorite people the gift of our show. Let them know they can find us at roadstakenshow.com or wherever they get their podcasts. We'll be happy to continue to supply them with tons of great stories with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on future episodes of Roads Taken.